0: Hello, and welcome to Day 37 of A Miserable Year. I'm Anthony Adler, and I'm going to read you the whole of Victor Hugo's glorious Les Miserables over the course of 2018. That's the podcast. Today's episode brings us to the start of the fourth section of the fourth volume, and we meet three of Les Miserables' most enduring characters, the formidable Thinadiers, and the presently pint-sized Cosette. As we're starting a new section, I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask you all a favour. If you're listening, and you've enjoyed A Miserable Year so far, It would mean a lot to me if you'd take a minute or so to rate the podcast on iTunes. The more ratings we get, the more listeners will find the show. It's the delightful opposite of a vicious circle. So, thanks guys. Anyway, with all of that admin done and out of the way, enjoy! Le Miserable, Volume 1, Fontaine, Book the Fourth, To Confide is Sometimes to Deliver into a Person's Power. Chapter 1 One Mother Meets Another Mother. There was, at May, near Paris, during the first quarter of this century, a sort of cookshop which no longer exists. The cookshop was kept by some people named Thanadia, husband and wife. It was situated in Boulanger Lane. Over the door, there was a board nailed flat against the wall. Upon this board was painted something which resembled a man carrying another man on his back, the latter wearing the big gilt epaulette of a general, with large silver stars. Red spots represented blood. The rest of the picture consisted of smoke, and probably represented a battle. Below ran this inscription, at the sign of Sergeant of Waterloo, or Sergeant de Waterloo. Nothing is more common than a cart or a truck on the door of a hostelry. Nevertheless, the vehicle, or to speak more accurately, the fragment of a vehicle, which encumbered the street in front of the cookshop of the Sergeant of Waterloo, one evening in the spring of 1818, would certainly have attracted, by its mass, The attention of any painter who had passed that way. It was the four carriage of one of those trucks which are used in wooded tracks of the country and which serve to transport thick planks and the trunks of trees. This four carriage was composed of a massive iron axle tree with a pivot into which was fitted a heavy shaft and which was supported by two huge wheels. The whole thing was compact, overwhelming and misshapen. It seemed like the gun carriage of an enormous cannon The ruts of the road had bestowed on the wheels, the fellies, the hub, the axle, and the shaft a layer of mud, a hideous yellow, daubing hue, tolerably like that with which people are fond of ornamenting cathedrals. The wood was disappearing under mud, and the iron beneath rust. Under the axle-tree hung, like drapery, a huge chain, worthy of some goliath of a convict. This chain suggested, not the beams, which it was its office transport but the mastodons and mammoths which it might have served to harness. It had the air of the galleys, but of cyclopean and superhuman galleys, and it seemed to have been detached from some monster. Homer would have bound Polyphemus with it, and Shakespeare, Caliban. Why was that four-carriage of a truck in that place in the street? In the first place, to encumber the street. Next, in order that it might finish the process of rusting. There is a throng of institutions in the old social order, which one comes across in this fashion as one walks about outdoors, and which have no other reason for existence than the above. The centre of the chain swung very near the ground in the middle, and in the loop, as in the rope of a swing, there were seated and grouped, on that particular evening, in exquisite interlacement, two little girls, one about two years and a half old, the other eighteen months, the younger in the arms of the other handkerchief, cleverly knotted about them, prevented their falling out. A mother had caught sight of that frightful chain and had said, come, there's a plaything for my children. The two children, who were dressed prettily and with some elegance, were radiant with pleasure. One would have said that there were two roses amid old iron. Their eyes were a triumph, their fresh cheeks were full of laughter. One had chestnut hair, the other brown. Their innocent faces were two delighted surprises. A blossoming shrub which grew near wafted to the passers-by, perfumes which seemed to emanate from them. The child of eighteen months displayed her pretty little bare stomach with the chaste indecency of childhood. Above and around these two delicate heads, all made of happiness and steeped in light, the gigantic four-carriage, black with rust, almost terrible, all entangled in curves at wild angles, rose in a vault, like the entrance of a cannon a few paces apart, crouching down upon the threshold of the hostelry. The mother, not a very prepossessing woman, by the way, though touching at that moment, was swinging the two children by means of a long cord, watching them carefully, for fear of accidents, with that an animal and celestial expression which is peculiar to maternity. At every backward and forward swing, the hideous links emitted a strident sound, which resembled a cry of rage. The little girls were in ecstasies. The setting sun mingled in this joy, and nothing could be more charming than this caprice of chance, which had made of a chain of titans the swing of cherubim. As she rocked her little ones, the mother hummed in a discordant voice a romance then celebrated. It must be said, a warrior. Her song, and the contemplation of her daughters, prevented her hearing and seeing what was going on in the street. In the meantime, someone had approached her, as she was beginning the first couplet of the romance, and suddenly she heard a voice saying very near her ear, "'You have two beautiful children there, madame.' "'To the fair and tender, Imogene,' replied the mother, continuing her romance. Then she turned her head. A woman stood before her, a few paces distant. The woman, This woman also had a child.' which she carried in her arms. She was carrying, in addition, a large carpet bag, which seemed very heavy. This woman's child was one of the most divine creatures that it is possible to behold. It was a girl, two or three years of age. She could have entered into competition with the two other little ones, as far as the coquetry of her dress was concerned. She wore a cap of fine linen, ribbons on her bodice, and Valencian lace on her cap. The folds of her skirt were raised, so as to permit a view of her white, firm, and dimpled leg. She was admirably rosy and healthy. The little beauty inspired a desire to take a bite from the apples of her cheeks. Of her eyes, nothing could be known, except that they must be very large, and that they had magnificent lashes. She was asleep. She slept with that slumber of absolute confidence peculiar to her age. The arms of mothers are made of tenderness. In them, children sleep profoundly. As for the mother, her appearance was sad and poverty stricken. She was dressed like a working woman who is inclined to turn into a peasant again. She was young. Was she handsome? Perhaps. But in that attire, it was not apparent. Her hair, a golden lock of which had escaped, seemed very thick, but was severely concealed beneath an ugly, Tight, close, nun-like cap, tied under the chin. A smile displays beautiful teeth, when one has them. But she did not smile. Her eyes did not seem to have been dry for a very long time. She was pale. She had a very weary and rather sickly appearance. She gazed upon her daughter asleep in her arms, with the air peculiar to a mother who has nursed her own child. A large blue handkerchief, such as the invalid's use was folded into a fichu and concealed her figure clumsily. Her hands were sunburnt and all dotted with freckles. Her forefinger was hardened and lacerated with a needle. She wore a cloak of coarse brown woolen stuff, a linen gown, and coarse shoes. It was Fontine, but difficult to recognize. Nevertheless, on scrutinizing her attentively, it was evident that she still retained her beauty. A melancholy fold, which resembled the beginning of irony, wrinkled her right cheek. As for her toilette, that aerial toilette of muslin and ribbons, which seemed made of mirth, of folly, and of music, full of bells, perfumed with lilacs, had vanished like that beautiful and dazzling hoarfrost, which is mistaken for diamonds in the sunlight. It melts, and leaves the branch quite black. Ten months had elapsed since the pretty farce, what had taken place in those ten months? It can be divined. After abandonment, straightened circumstances, Fontine had immediately lost sight of Favourite, Zephine, and Dahlia. The bond once broken on the side of the men, it was loosened between the women. They would have been greatly astonished had any one of them told them a fortnight later they had been friends. There no longer existed any reason for such a thing. Fontine had remained alone. The father of her child, gone. Alas, such ruptures are irrevocable. She found herself absolutely isolated, minus the habit of work, plus the taste for pleasure. Drawn away by her liaison with Ptolemyes to disdain the pretty trade which she knew, she had neglected to keep her market open. It was now closed to her. She had no resource. Fontine barely knew how to read, and did not know how to write. In her childhood, she had only been taught to sign her name. She had a public letter writer indict an epistle to Ptolemyes, then a second, then a third. Ptolemyes replied to none of them. Fontine heard the gossip say, as they looked at her child, Who takes those children seriously? One only shrugs one's shoulders over such children. Then she thought of Ptolemyes, who had shrugged his shoulders over his child and who did not take that innocent being seriously, and her heart grew gloomy towards that man. But what was she to do? She no longer knew to whom to apply. She had committed a fault, but the foundation of her nature, as will be remembered, was modesty and virtue. She was vaguely conscious that she was on the verge of falling into distress, and of gliding into a worse state. Courage was necessary. She possessed it, and held herself firm. The idea of returning to her native town of montreal Sumur occurred to her. There, someone might possibly know her and give her work. Yes, but it would be necessary to conceal her fault. In a confused way, she perceived the necessity of a separation which would be more painful than the first one. Her heart contracted, but she took her resolution. Fontaine as we shall see, had the fierce bravery of life. She, had already valiantly renounced finery, had dressed herself in linen, and had put all her silks, all her ornaments, all her ribbons, and all her laces on her daughter, the only vanity which was left to her, and a holy one it was. She sold all that she had, which produced for her two hundred francs. Her little debts paid. She had only about eighty francs left. At the age of 22, on a beautiful spring morning, she quitted Paris, bearing her child on her back. Anyone who had seen those two pass would have had pity on them. The woman had, in all the world, nothing but her child, and the child had, in all the world, no one but this woman. Fontine had nursed her child, and this had tired her chest, and she coughed a little we shall have no further occasion to speak of Monsieur Felix Ptolemyers. Let us confine ourselves to saying that, twenty years later, under King Louis-Philippe, he was a great provincial lawyer, wealthy and influential, a wise elector, and a very severe juryman. He was still a man of pleasure. Towards the middle of the day, after having, from time to time, for the sake of resting herself, travelled, for three or four sous a league, in what was then known as the Petit de Environ de Paris, the little suburban coach service. Fontine found herself at Montfermeil in the alley Boulanger. As she passed the Nadia her story, the two little girls, blissful in the monster swing, had dazzled her in a manner, and she had halted in front of that vision of joy. Charms exist. These two little girls were a charm to this mother. She gazed at them in much emotion. The presence of angels is an announcement of paradise. She thought that above this inn, she held the mysterious here of Providence. These two little creatures were evidently happy. She gazed at them, she admired them, in such a moment that the moment when their mother was recovering her breath between two couplets of her song, she could not refrain from addressing to her the remark that we have just read. "'You have two pretty children.' Mutan, the most ferocious creatures are disarmed by caresses bestowed on their young. The mother raised her head, and thanked her, and bade the wayfarer sit down on the bench at the door, she herself being seated on the threshold. The two women began to chat. My name is Madame Ternadier, said the mother of the two girls. We keep this in. Then, her mind still running on her romance, she resumed humming between her teeth. It must be so, I am a knight, and I am off to Palestine. This Madame Thénardier was a sandy-complexioned woman, thin and angular, the type of the soldier's wife in all its unpleasantness. And what was odd was a languishing air, which she owed to her perusal of romances. She was a simpering but masculine creature. Old romances produce that effect when rubbed against the imagination of cookshop woman. She was still young. She was barely thirty. If this crouching woman had stood upright, her lofty stature and her frame of a perambulating colossus suitable for fares might have frightened the traveller at the outset, troubled her confidence, and disturbed what caused what we had to relate to vanish. A person who is seated instead of standing erect, Destinies hang upon such a thing as that. Destinies hang upon such a thing as that. The travellers told her story with slight modifications. That she was still, that she was a working woman. That her husband was dead. That her work in Paris had failed her and that she was on her way to seek it elsewhere in her own native parts. That she had left Paris that morning on foot. That as she was carrying her child and felt fatigued, she had got into the Villemonde coach when she met it. That from Villemonde she had come to Montfermeil on foot. That the little one had walked a little, but not much, because she was so young. And that she'd been obliged to take her up. And the jewel had fallen asleep. At this word, she bestowed upon her daughter a passionate kiss, which woke her. The child opened her eyes great blue eyes, like her mother's, and looked at what? Nothing. With that serious and sometimes severe air of little children, which is a mystery of their luminous innocence in the presence of our twilight of virtue, one would say that they feel themselves to be angels, they know us to be men. Then the child began to laugh, and although the mother held it fast to her, she slipped to the ground with the unconquerable energy of a little being which wished to run All at once she caught sight of the two others in the swing, stopped short, and put out her tongue, in sign of admiration. Mother Ternadier released her daughters, made them descend from the swing, and said, Now, amuse yourselves, all three of you. Children become acquainted quickly at that age, and at the expiration of a minute the little Ternadiers were playing with the newcomer and making holes in the ground, which was an immense pleasure. The newcomer was very gay. The goodness of the mother is written in the gaiety of the child. She had seized a scrap of wood which served her for a shovel, and energetically dug a cavity big enough for a fly. The gravedigger's business becomes a subject of laughter when performed by a child. The two women pursued their chat. What is your little one's name? Cosette. For Cosette, read Euphrasie. The child's name was Euphrasy. But out of Euphrasie, the mother had made Cosette by that sweet and graceful instinct of mothers and of the populace, which changes Josepha into Pepita and Francois into Celette. It is a sort of derivative which disarranges and disconcerts the whole science of etymologists. We have known a grandmother who succeeded in turning Theodore into Nom. How old is she? She is going on three. "'That's the age of my eldest.' In the meantime, the three little girls were grouped in an attitude of profound anxiety and blissfulness. An event had happened. A big worm had emerged from the ground, and they were afraid. And they were in ecstasies over it. Their radiant brows touched each other. One would have said that there were three heads in one aureola. "'How easily children get acquainted at once.' exclaimed Mother Ternadier, One would swear that they were sisters. This remark was probably the spark which the other mother had been waiting for. She seized the Ternadier's hand, looked at her fixedly, and said, Will you keep my child for me? The Ternadier made one of those movements of surprise, which signify neither assent nor refusal. Cosette's mother continued, You see, I cannot take my daughter to the country. My work will not permit it. With a child, one can find no situation. People are ridiculous in the country. It was the good God who caused me to pass your inn. When I caught sight of your little ones, so pretty, so clean, and so happy, it overwhelmed me. I said, here is a good mother. That is just the thing. That will make three sisters. And then, it will not be long before I return. Will you keep my child for me? I must see about it, replied the Thanadier. I will give you six francs a month, Here a man's voice called from the depths of the cookshop. Six months paid in advance. Six times seven makes forty-two. I will give it, said the mother. Not for less than seven francs, added the man's voice. Total, fifty-seven francs said Madame Thénardier, and she hummed vaguely with these figures. "'It must be,' said a warrior. "'I will pay it,' said the mother. "'I have eighty francs. "'I shall have enough left to reach the country by travelling on foot. "'I shall earn money there, and as soon as I have a little, "'I will return for my darling.' "'The man's voice resumed. "'And fifteen francs in addition for preliminary expenses.' "'That is my husband,' said the thanadier. "'Of course she has an outfit, the poor treasure. "'I understood perfectly that it was your husband. "'And a beautiful outfit, too. "'A senseless outfit. "'Everything by the dozen. "'And silk gowns like a lady. "'It is here, in my carpet bag.' "'You must hand it over,' struck in the man's voice again. "'Of course I shall give it to you,' said the mother. It would be very queer if I were to leave my daughter quite naked. The master's face appeared. That's good, said he. The bargain was concluded. The mother passed the night at the inn, gave up her money, and left her child. Fastened her carpet bag once more, now reduced in volume by the removal of the outfit, and light henceforth, and set out the following morning, intending to return soon. People arrange such departures tranquilly, they are despairs. A neighbour of the Tenadiers met this mother as she was setting out, and came back with the remark. I've just seen a woman crying in the street, so it's enough to bring your art. When Cosette's mother had taken her departure, the man said to the woman, That will serve to pay my note for 110 francs, which falls due tomorrow. I lacked 50 francs. Do you know that I should have had a bailiff and a protest after me? You played the mousetrap nicely with your uns. Without suspecting it, said the woman.